Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the SkyBridge Bitcoin Review. It's great to have uh, the band back together this week. We've had a few guest uh, appearances the last few weeks. We finally have uh, Brett and Anthony uh, back on the SkyBridge Bitcoin Review again this week, which we're excited to discuss. Uh, What's been another interesting week in Bitcoin. Just a reminder, my name is John Darcy. I'm a director of business development here at SkyBridge. I'm joined by uh, Anthony Scaramucci, who's a founder uh, and managing partner of SkyBridge, as well as Brett Messing, who's our president, chief operating officer, and our resident Bitcoin maximalist, as we like to say. Just a reminder, if anybody, if, if it's your first time here on the SkyBridge Bitcoin Review, uh, we like these to be very interactive. So there's a Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen on Zoom. Please post your questions. We want to make this sort of a crisp 30, 35 minutes uh, going forward. So we want to make sure while we cover all the most important news in the world of Bitcoin, that we also answer your questions. So please post your questions there. Uh, but if you receive the SALT Bitcoin newsletter, the SkyBridge Bitcoin newsletter, uh, there, there was a lot to cover from this week. So we'll dive right into it. One thing we didn't talk about uh, in the newsletter, actually, that I think is highly relevant, and I think uh, Brett uh, agrees with me on this one, is there was a difficulty adjustment as it relates to Bitcoin mining this week, which didn't get maybe uh, as much fanfare as some of the other pieces of news. But Brett, could you start out by just explaining to everyone on this call that may or may not be familiar with what that difficulty adjustment means, what it is, and why it's significant? Yeah, I, th- I think the, the difficulty adjustment is actually one of the more brilliant aspects of what Satoshi developed into Bitcoin. And, and what essentially it does is, you know, the Bitcoin network is structured to produce a new block every 10 minutes. As more and, more, and they solve math problems, you know, as more computing power comes onto the network, the problems get solved more quickly. And so the blocks get issued faster than one every 10 minutes. So what, what has happened almost somewhat linearly over the last 10 years or so is that the difficulty adjustment goes up consistently as more and more computing power comes onto the network. As we know, and I'm sure we'll discuss some more, you know, China has banned mining and you've had essentially, you know, about 50% of the, of the computing power um, go offline, you know, almost. You see, that's the Chinese, okay? I'm going to blame, I'm going to call that right now on the Chinese Communist Party, okay? Trying to hurt Bitcoin, the Bitcoin ecosystem, the hash rate and everything else, John. So yep. uh, while Brett's, try, Brett's trying to figure that out, let me let me chime in here. And so I think the point that Brett is making is that as the hash rate came down, the difficulty dropped by about 28%. Why is that important? Because it reduces the energy consumption necessary to mine the coins. And it also makes the coins, once again, more attractive from an arbitrage perspective in terms of what the prices are of the coins in the open market and what they can be mined for. And so um, you're back on, Brett, or are you still? I am. I am. Sorry about that. We... uh, all right, I, I, I basically explained the hash rate calculation, but if you want to add to it, and I blamed your freezing on the Chinese Communist Party. So I just wanted to make sure, just wanted to make sure that that was, we have, to have, we have to have, you know, this is a blame game here at SkyBridge. I had to blame it on somebody. I think, so locked, is, I think you locked up again. You may, you may not want to use your hands when you're speaking because... If you got shitty internet, then you know it's, it's like really bad. It's like you know what I'm saying. Try to put your—you're not Italian, so you could actually put your hands under your ass and still speak. If I did that, of course, I wouldn't be able to speak. 
Can you hear me? Not, not really. No, we can't really hear you, but um, why don't you try to log back in and John and I will, uh, will pitch in. All right, we're going to dive into another piece of news before we let Brett come in and give his expose on uh, Bitcoin mining difficulty adjustments. But um, we saw uh, Steve Cohen, your good friend, Anthony, just announced that uh, Point72 is looking to hire a head of crypto. Uh, Soros Fund Management, uh, obviously headed by George Soros, decided to dive in uh, to actively trading crypto. Do you think it's just a matter of time before almost every large hedge fund is now involved? I mean, if you go through the list of names, you have Dan Loeb, uh, Stan Druckenmiller, Bill Miller. Uh, you have a variety of uh, the top investment managers in the world. Do you think it's a matter of time or what are you hearing from the, the hedge fund and investment community? Well, I think it's important to understand why they're getting involved. So uh, the short answer to your question is yes. I think any person, and I said this this morning on CNBC, any person that does a deep dive analysis of the Bitcoin ecosystem, the network effects of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and some of the other tokens recognizes that these are here to stay. It recognizes that there's a big digital component to our lives now, whether it's through the NFTs or just the deployment and the effectuation of a decentralized financial network. So for all of those reasons, the more homework that you do the smarter you are. It would be the same way if someone looking at the airplanes taking off in 1917, saying, okay, well, that's obviously a fad. It'll never turn into any commercial traffic or won't be deployed for the military. And yet the more homework you did, you recognize, okay, there's gonna be huge markets for both of those things. Uh, decentralized finance is here. Bitcoin represents that, it's a huge anchor. And so therefore every one of those hedge fund managers is learning about it and scaling into it I don't think they're going to take Charlie Munger's approach and call it like a scourge on the civilization. I do believe that they're they're, they're going to eventually all be a part of it. Brad, are you back? Yeah, yeah, because uh, you know I'm, I'm now are using. You gonna, are you going to start speaking like a Godzilla? No, movie? no, no. I, I, I'm, you be I'm all right now. Or what? Okay, I'm off of Wi-Fi. I'm using Verizon because this shows. I think we started out sounding like Wayne's World. We have the technology of Wayne's World. Well, I I mean, somebody asked if you were using a dial-up modem. And of course, I said that you were from 1991. That person happened to be Steve Case, the founder of AOL, that asked that question. But that's All right, we're going to go take two here for the sake of the podcast. Brett, tell us about the Bitcoin mining adjustment that happened this week and why it's significant. All right, so I'm going to just summarize it. I am using my hands. So 50% of the, the the miners essentially were shut off overnight. And so, you know, what the network did through this difficulty adjustment is essentially made the math problems easier so that the network has worked completely fine and seamlessly, despite the fact that you've lost half of the computing power. There's really not another network probably in the world that could take that kind of a shock to the system. Look, I, I, I think the... The, the, the primary takeaway, which I think we've discussed, is just how bullish this, this basically state attack by China on Bitcoin is for Bitcoin. You've shown incredible resiliency of a network where you can shut off half of it and the network just keeps moving along. And by the way, all that mining capacity that was shut down in China is going to get dispersed throughout the country, world. Excuse me, And so you're going to end up with a much more decentralized network. You're going to kill the China controls Bitcoin narrative. 
you're going to kill the like, well, what about a 51% attack narrative? And Bitcoin's going to get greener. Um, and so it, it's incredibly bullish. But I, I think the, in my, in my estimation, I think the difficulty adjustment um, is going to basically put in a bottom here for Bitcoin. And I, I think, again, it just shows how um, just how resilient and really brilliantly designed the network is. Yeah, I remember. When I, I just want to add something. Ahead, minor minor revenue has increased by fifty percent in the last four days since the record difficulty adjustment downwards. This is a record adjustment downward. The revenues have gone up, and to what Brett is saying, this is one of the more brilliant aspects of it. This is a, another reason why Bitcoin has remained so resilient and anti fragile during this period of time. Right. And I remember, Brett, when when Bitcoin was trading above 60,000 or in the in the high 50s, and there was this barrage of amazing news when it comes to network adoption and participation, and it was struggling to go higher. I remember you said to me, you know, it's it's really from a trader's perspective, not trading well. Uh, today, we're getting this barrage of negative news from China. You know, more than half of global Bitcoin mining emanated from China. They have aggressively cracked down on that. You know, the, the mining uh, hash rate has gone down significantly, but at the same time, Bitcoin has continued to hold in here sort of in the mid 30s. Would you characterize that as sort of flipping it's on its head from what it was, you know, when it was in its 50s, not going up on good news? Now it's not going down on bad news? 100%. I mean, if you look at what has been thrown at Bitcoin in the last five, six weeks, it's, it's really incredible. As I said, you had a state attack right by, you know, the sort of what, what had become a bit of certainly the home of Bitcoin mining. Um, and, uh, you know, you've had the ESG arguments, you had, you know, congressional hearings, Elizabeth Warren, you have Binance, you know, encountering regulatory difficulties in few nations where it's operating without proper regulation. Um, and it's not going down anymore. No, I think this is, um, I think it's a very bullish sign. But I, I do have actually some, quote, inside information to add. So I actually talked today with one of the large institutional traders of, of Bitcoin. And they were talking about, as we have on this call, show frequently, how nascent we still are, how early it is. And he says, we're not even in the first inning. We've also been in a number of institutions, whether they be insurance companies or endowments that have allocated to Bitcoin. What they said, uh, this, this trading firm, institutions sort of buy the dip. So insurance endowments that had positions if it was an equity market situation and the equity market came down by 40, 50%, they would add. They're not adding. Now they're not selling, but they're not adding. And, and again, I think that speaks to that. You know, a year or two ago, there was career risk for an investment professional to buy Bitcoin. You know, I think that that career risk is dissipating quickly, uh, but it's just, it's just still early. And I think the other thing that we're all experiencing is that when Bitcoin declines, you know, I think there's a violence to it that people have to adjust to. And that violence brings a bit of fear. Um, uh, you know, you don't have like, a, well, I'm buying it at this EBITDA level or at, if this stock gets to this PE, I'll buy it. You don't have that sort of traditional valuation framework to sort of serve as, you know, an entry point, if you will. Um, so I thought that was an interesting insight that that none of their large institutions were adding, but none were selling either. Um, so I guess they're true hodlers. 
Anthony, I want to I want to turn to a different topic that we covered uh, sort of as the lead story in the newsletter this week, and, and that's related to NYDIG. So just for full transparency, we have a business relationship with NYDIG um, that Anthony can talk about. But while you know there's been a lot of headlines, both negative and positive for Bitcoin over the last six weeks, NYDIG continues to plug away with a lot of these sort of enterprise level partnerships that they've struck to enable uh, more accounts, more consumers in the United States to have the ability to buy, hold, and sell Bitcoin natively uh, in their brokerage accounts or, or payment processor accounts and things of that nature. They struck two more of those in between last week's newsletter and this week's newsletter in the last week. Uh, one is with Q2, uh, which is uh, it's a, a strategic uh, partnership with a group that is involved in mobile payments. Another one was with Fiserv previously, uh, and then another one this week with NCR, uh, which is going to enable Bitcoin service for up to 650 banks, up to 24 million customers that are uh, customers of those banks. How significant is quietly what NYDIG is doing with all these partnerships uh, relative to some of the headline noise that we're seeing? Well, I think it goes to what Brett was saying, that the, the news in the last six months, you could put the ledger together, there's been some damaging news that's impacted Bitcoin. Bitcoin has demonstrated anti-fragility, but under the surface, there's also been a stream of super positive news. More and more funds adopting it, more and more sophisticated hedge fund managers and institutional investors entering the space. And I think what you're learning from Ross Stevens and Nidig, they have a very long-term strategic vision and passionate conviction related to where Bitcoin is going. And so they want to be part of the pipes and plumbing of Bitcoin. Now, you know that we have this uh, unit investment trust, this first trust Skybridge digital innovation portfolio. And it's 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 companies like NYDIG, who unfortunately are private right now, that I would love to own a piece of in that portfolio because Ross and his team are unstinting in terms of their long-term forward vision of where this space is going to be and how prepared they are to be in the space. So all the stuff that they did this week is evidence of that, John. Brett, you have anything to add about NYDIG's approach? No, look, I think what they're doing is great. I, 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 here's where I think this, the significance comes in. And you know, I'm coming to you from Los Angeles and I, I spent July 4th out here. And, you know, from a bit from a Bitcoin adoption standpoint, I would say Los Angeles is pretty far behind. You know, you have more sophisticated financial investors in New York. You have more sophisticated tech investors in San Francisco. And so, you know, I'm wearing a Bitcoin hat. I wore it on July 4th and, you know, I had a fair number of Bitcoin questions. And, you know, what people often say is, all right, well, if I want to buy it, where do I buy it? And, you know, I tell them where they can buy it. But if I if I could tell them, just call your bank. Right, your bank, you can buy it into your bank account. I, I think there's a subset of those people that would do it. You know, they're not going to open a Coinbase account. You, you know, buying a couple of grand on PayPal isn't that interesting to them. Um, you know, they, they'd be interested in getting involved, but only if it sits in the, in the existing sort of ecosystem of accounts that they have. Um, and so, what NIDIG's doing, I think, is powering those accounts. And I think ultimately, that, that's going to facilitate adoption. And, and as Anthony was sort of suggesting, it's a long-term play. It's not, you know, I don't think there's, I don't think NIDIG's going to like turn a light switch and we're going to see, you know, massive inflows, but they're, they're laying this plumbing, which I think is incredibly important. Right. 
One of the things we pride ourselves on on this show and in our newsletter is providing balance, you know, when it comes to sharing news and discussing news about Bitcoin. And and certainly one of the the primary uh, criticisms of Bitcoin is its use in illicit finance, scams, mountain gox early uh, in the life of Bitcoin. It was a high profile incident of, of uh, you know, criminals hacking that exchange and and absconding with money from that exchange. And you've had a couple of incidents recently. Uh, Anthony, I'll start with you on this one. Uh, Brazil's uh, Bitcoin Banco Group, um, the leaders of that group have, have basically absconded with about $300 million uh, worth of Bitcoin. Um, and they were they were arrested uh, by 90 federal officers down in Brazil after a three-year investigation. That comes on the heels of a $3.6 billion uh, disappearance from South Africa's largest crypto exchange called AfriCrypt. Uh, that, that those the leaders of that uh, crypto exchange are still on the loose. How concerned are you about uh, those incidents, the incidents themselves, and also uh, the PR that comes along with that as different countries and different institutions contemplate regulation and potential adoption at the institutional level? Well, listen, I mean, you know, who's getting who? The PR related to that stuff slows down adoption. The PR, whether it's true or false, related to Bitcoin and the environment slows down adoption. The fact that ransomware, even though the FBI was successful in the colonial pipeline, ransomware uh, transaction in finding the email traffic among the hackers and identifying the keys and getting the Bitcoin uh, is problematic. At least it's more accurate. But at the end of the day, all of this sort of FUD uh, slows down the adoption of Bitcoin. I don't think that... uh, um, the exchanges that you're referencing are the institutional choice exchanges. Uh, as you know, we use Coinbase Pro uh, for our funds. Uh, we use Fidelity for our funds. We use NIDIG. Uh, and we're not, we're not set up on those funds. And I would just caution people uh, to try to stick to the upper echelon of best practices in crypto. Still very, very early innings, John. Uh, and yes, those things do hurt from an adoption standpoint. Yeah, and the, the last piece we covered too in the newsletter is that SoftBank, uh, despite the issues in Brazil with uh, the Bitcoin Banco Group, SoftBank just invested $200 million in a Brazilian crypto exchange called Mercado Bitcoin. Uh, it was their Series B round. It was the largest Series B round in the history of Latin America. So think about that for a second. This nascent asset class uh, you know, a, a exchange that's operating in that asset class uh, garnered the largest Series B in the history of Latin America. Uh, Mercado Bitcoin is planning through either acquisitions or organic growth to grow through Central America and Latin America in places like Argentina, Chile, and others as, as Bitcoin regulation continues to evolve. So it didn't discourage SoftBank, one of the largest uh, venture capital firms in the world, from investing $200 million uh, into a Brazilian-based Bitcoin exchange. It just goes to show you that you know that there's uh, good players and there's there's more nefarious players in this space, and it's very important to understand who you're doing business with. Well, um, not, not to interrupt you, just yep, the valuation ahead. improvement of things like BlockFi, Kraken, Coinbase, uh, Binance, any of the major players that have proven to be very tough and secure from a hacking perspective. Look at their valuation metrics. And so I would just tell people, if you're in the space, go with the highest quality names. Let's talk about BlockFi for a second. We had Zach Prince, uh, who is the CEO, co-founder of BlockFi, on Assault Talk this week. He was very impressive talking about 
BlockFi's business model as a crypto lender uh, and different business lines that they could uh, build from there. They also just basically opened up the waiting list for their Bitcoin rewards credit cards. So there was a massive waiting list. It's the first true Bitcoin rewards credit card in partnership with Visa. So basically you have anybody who gets this credit card, which there's, I think, hundreds of thousands of people in line for it. They, when they spend dollars, they get cash back in the form of Bitcoin, one and a half percent cash reward. So uh, what are the implications, first of all, of that that credit card reward program coming online in terms of driving uh, retail adoption? And, and what did you learn about BlockFi that, that you thought was interesting? Well, I mean, there's so many different things. I would just encourage people to listen to that interview. I sat with Jeff Bezos in 1999. Uh, and Zach Prince reminds me of Jeff, a young Jeff Bezos in terms of his intensity of focus, his understanding of his core business, and his relentlessness. And uh, remember, Amazon almost was called relentless.com. In fact, if you go to relentless.com, it, it takes you to the Amazon page because it was uh, originally supposed to be called that. So Zach is a relentless guy. And basically what he's telling you is the market is so immature that there's no lending facilities available by and large for cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. And if you look at the rates and the spreads and the fees for storage and the margin activity at a place like BlockFi, they're literally a money, money printing press, um, you know, like the Federal Reserve in some ways, John. I mean, in, in the month of May, uh, the entire crypto market was down roughly 50-ish percent. BlockFi printed $61 million in revenue. So I don't know if I'm allowed to say this or not, but, but, but Dan Loeb, uh, who's a partner of ours, we got a ton of money uh, with Dan, uh, several hundred million dollars, spoke to him over the weekend. He's leading the round on BlockFi. He thinks it's a four to five bagger from here. Uh, and so to me, I'm super excited for Zach. I'm super excited for his team. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Anthony Pompliano, who introduced us, frankly, to uh, BlockFi. Uh, but I just want you to think of the power and the the idea. The idea is an old idea. You put money on deposit with us. It happens to be in Bitcoin. You can yield. You can get yield on that money. And oh, by the way, the reason why you're able to get yield on that money are people that want to borrow that Bitcoin from you. And so that spread and the security and the integrity of that process, I think, is really uh, the main business protocol for BlockFi. So we're super excited to be a part of it. Brett, we have a question from the audience, and we, we talked about this with Vijay Boyapati uh, a few weeks ago, and he joined us as a guest, but I want your take on it. It's from Stephen in the chat. Why do you think the Chinese Communist Party so aggressively did a 180 uh, on its attitude towards Bitcoin? You know, they, they had banned it twice before, including in 2017, but they hadn't fully cracked down, especially on mining. You know, it's evidenced by the fact that somewhere around 60% of global uh, hash rate was emanating from China. Why do you think they're so aggressively cracking down on it now? Um, well, like, again, I, I wouldn't say with respect that they've made a 180. I mean, they've banned it a couple of times. And so now they're broadening the band and actually enforcing it in a meaningful way. But, I, you know, I, I think you have to place this into a larger context, right, which is, you know, they pulled the Alibaba um, IPO, you know, days before it priced, right, which was an incredible thing to do. Um, is Didi just went public. And they're clamping down on it. That's down like 25% since it went public. It's their, I guess it's their Uber. Um, they, they are going after large tech businesses 
of which Bitcoin is one. So, you know, I think everyone in Bitcoin, and I, I love this about the Bitcoin community, takes things so personally, almost, you know, and I, and I don't think this is about Bitcoin. I think this is, this is uh, you know, there, it's a closed society and Bitcoin is about openness. And ultimately, I think it's about controlling capital flows. You know, they don't want money flowing out. They want to control the money. They want to control the information. You know, money and information equal power. I, I think it's, um, again, I think you have to look at it in, the, in this, this, this broader mosaic. Yeah. Anthony, why don't you uh, sort of rehash what you spoke about on CNBC this morning? You did an appearance where you talked about both DD's, uh, the decision from the Chinese government to remove DD uh, from the app store because they didn't uh, hold their IPO on the shelf until there was a cybersecurity review. Basically, there's just an obsession in China with data, as Brett alluded to, about controlling data and maintaining their grip on, on power in every aspect of society. And also, what are the implications of that related to their decision on Bitcoin, Anthony? Well, I mean, the first thing is if the Chinese government and the regulators are asking you to delay your IPO and you elect to not to delay your IPO, there's monumental consequences. And so they're letting you know if Jack Ma can disappear for many months and then reappear after paying billions of fines and effectively be neutered or spayed by the Chinese government, they're letting you know that they're in control. They're letting you know that the nationalistic tendency to put a dome over China and to control information and assets. Remember, you, you, you gain your wealth in China. It's very hard to move assets out of China because of capital restrictions. So imagine Bitcoin. Uh, you convert your Chinese wealth into Bitcoin and you move it instantaneously to a bank in the West. This is a big no-no for China. So there's no question in my mind, the same way that they banned two-thirds of Google, almost all of Facebook for a period of time, uh, they've got, you know, Apple on its knees, often at times begging for forgiveness. Tim Cook, I think, has given at least two John Cena fast and furious-like apologies to the Chinese Communist Party for Apple's quote-unquote misdeeds in China, is telling you that there's something going on in the Chinese leadership where there's an insecurity there related to data. There's an insecurity related to the sharing of data with the United States. And there's an insecurity related to capital migration. The last time I saw this was in the 80s. Um, you know, in 1961, uh, Khrushchev demanded that the East German government build a wall uh, to separate the Russian East German side of Berlin from the West, which was the French, British and West Germany and American side of Berlin. And they built that wall and they tried to hold people in the system. Uh, and so the Chinese, by their actions, are building a metaphorical Berlin Wall, if you will, in terms of the suppression of data, information, the suppression of capital. How long will that last? God only knows, but that tells you that there's deepening insecurity inside the Politburo there about their control over the country. Right. Um, the last piece I want to ask you about, Brett, and I don't know if you've looked at it closely, is Barclays, the, the largest bank in the UK. They're blocking customers now uh, from sending money to Binance. They can still withdraw money from Binance, but it was essentially they interpreted a ruling from the UK Financial Conduct Authority 
to basically say that uh, Binance is not allowed to engage in regulated activities in the country. Are you worried about further crackdowns in places like the UK? And, and what's your current outlook if it's changed at all in the last month on uh, the regulatory situation in the US? Um, no, no, and I think this ties to the earlier stories we discussed about Brazil and South Africa. Like we want good regulation, right? We want these companies to be properly regulated and we want people that make money in crypto to pay their taxes, right? Because that'll make the government happy. Um, you know, Binance is, you know, has built, it's an incredible business, but they have played a little bit of regulatory arbitrage. I, I, I don't think there's a lot of surprise that, that they're running into regulatory enforcement in some jurisdictions. What they've done in the U.S. seems great. They hired Brian Brooks, who was, you know, the former U.S. comptroller. He's the CEO of, you know, Binance U.S., and he's looking to build a fully compliant U.S. subsidiary. And I think they're just going to have to do that in other markets as well. I, I you know, I think that, um, you know, crypto broadly, Bitcoin has just gotten so big the people want it, um, even as early as it is. And, um you know, governments are going to have to figure out a way to properly regulate it so that the, the citizens are protected. And, and that ties into like, you know, in the U.S., why we should have an ETF. A former CFTC commissioner today came out and, and said as much, um, uh, you know, in terms of the political environment here, I would say the thing that I find most concerning is that I think Bitcoin, and this shouldn't be surprising to anyone, is becoming politicized. Um, like like Mass did, and um, and the, you know the progressive community is really anti Bitcoin. You know some of the things, whether it was Elizabeth Warren or Brad Sherman or Maxine Waters, um, it really it, what they're saying doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, Anthony and I discussed this. You know, Elizabeth Warren has spent her career going after banks, and she's doing the bidding for the large banks, you know, who are terrified of you know crypto and fintech. Um, so, you know, I, I would say that that's the thing that concerns me a little bit is, is, is that, um, Bitcoin is openness. And I think there's a big opportunity with China closing it down. Um, you know, earlier in the year, Peter Thiel, you know, was sort of saying, you know, Bitcoin is a weapon of the Chinese. Well, they, they, they have unilaterally disarmed. And, and I think that creates an opportunity for us. And, and, uh, you know, I think we as a community and there, and there are, you know, uh, Brian Armstrong and others who are who are lobbying and, and I think leading a charge to educate. We need to educate. You know, I'm a Democrat. We need to educate the Democrats about you know Bitcoin and why it's good for the people. Well, Binance also just hired. I don't know if you know him, uh, Brett, but Manny Alvarez, who ran California's Department of Financial Protection and Innovation, um, to work alongside Brian Brooks as they build out their U.S. business as well. I, I don't know him, but I did see that. I thought that was great. Yeah, and, and there was an article, uh, Asher pointed this out in the chat uh, in the Wall Street Journal this morning about uh, the SEC and Gary Gensler taking a look, especially at stable coins, as well as a source uh, potential of regulation. I don't know if you caught that article, Brett, um, but, but it's basically regulators signaling they want more control over the crypto world uh, for, for the sake of consumer protections. But it, it goes to reinforce your point about us welcoming uh, regulation. Yeah, again, I think if it's if it's sort of smart regulation, you know, look, you're going to have an increasing number of public companies. You have Coinbase, you know, Robinhood filed their S1, something like 34% of their business. Was it was it 34 or 20%? Of some substantial percentage, which I, I used to remember, is from, from crypto trading. And I think that's just going to keep going higher. 
Um, and, you know, I, they have however many users they have. I mean, it's just it, 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 it's it's finding its way into so many investors portfolios that, again, I think we should have an ETF. And I think, you know, the crypto exchanges should be regulated and, you know, there should be, a, you know, the investor protection so people can more comfortably invest in the sector. All right, well, we'll wrap it up there. I said we'd keep it at a crisp uh, 30 or 35 minutes. It's 4.36. Before, before you go, let's answer that one question about quantum computing, though. Right? Yeah, go, go ahead. So just quickly, you know, we really believe that on the quantum side, uh, you have parallel tracking or it's like a match sailing race. And so as quantum computing gets added to try to crack Bitcoin, there will be quantum computing on the side of protection of Bitcoin in the nodes. So uh, we don't see that as a super threat. I know that's been discussed by people, but I don't see that as a risk. Brett, do you want to add anything before we chime out? Uh, no, I mean, I, 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 like you, we've spoken to people who I think are a lot smarter than us on this issue and, and come away, you know, comforted um, that, again, there's the, the match sailing and just the decentralization of Bitcoin, um, you know, makes it sort of a uniquely challenging target. All right. Over to you, John Darcy. Well, there you have it. We'll wrap it up. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to uh, this week's SkyBridge Bitcoin Review. It's great to have the full band back together with uh, Anthony and Brett. And we'll, we'll look forward to doing a few more of these before the summer's out, as well as welcoming a few guests. And as always, we have a few great uh, crypto salt talks coming up uh, in the next several weeks, including uh, we're taping with Robert Breedlove, who you might uh, be familiar with his podcast if you're involved in the crypto world. But would highly recommend that. Um, and also, we, we hope to see you in September. I have to plug our SALT conference. Uh, we'll be returning with SALT in person in New York, September 13th to the 15th. We have FTX, NYDIG, Coinbase, BlockFi, uh, basically a who's who of the crypto. Skybridge, Skybridge Capital. Skybridge Capital, of course. In our digital uh, team. We'll be there. Uh, so right it's, it's going to be a who's who of, of people in the crypto world, as well as titans of the hedge fund community, Steve Cohen, Dan Loeb, Kathy Wood. Uh, going to be speaking as well. So it's going to be a fantastic event. Chain smokers, the chain, chain smokers. smokers are going to be performing if, you, if you're into that type of thing. They're also into NFTs. So uh, we would love to see you in person in September uh, if you are so inclined. It's going to be a beautiful time. We may even have our own NFT, time. by the way, John. We may even have our own NFT before this is over. Maybe we will. Maybe, you never know. maybe we will. Um, but, but thank you, everybody, for tuning in this week to the Skybridge Bitcoin Review. We'll see you back here again next week.